1 Corinthians 1, we're reading from verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who would believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of God. Thanks, Sam. If you don't know me, my name's Ben. I'm the community pastor here. And I want to ask us a question about culture this morning. How often have we thought about culture? I mean, culture is often a powerful and unseen force. From the moment we are born, we find ourselves within a culture. We can't escape it. We are born into and influenced by the values and norms that surround us, for better or worse. And it's usually easier to see a culture when you come from outside of it. When I was living in London, I had wonderful Scandinavian friends, and I don't think we ever had a fight or an argument. And after getting to know them for a while, I learnt that their culture hates conflict. They'll do anything they can to avoid conflict with you. And I also know some things about Australia when I had the chance to live outside the country for a little while. Um, Sean and I, my wife, we were at Abu Dhabi Airport, and if you can ever go somewhere else, take another route, go to Singapore or something like that, because it's not the nicest airport in the world. And we were there, and uh, there was so much congestion at the security clearance that it was bulging into the exit of the escalators, and Michelle was actually coming down the escalators and, and didn't think she'd be able to get off. It was actually pretty scary for a moment. And this uh, staff person came and casually turned them off out of nowhere. I don't know where he came from, so she was all right. But we were, sitting there, we were standing there waiting in this massive crowd of people, and it was inconvenient, and we were around all sorts of different cultures but we could only hear Australian voices complaining and getting upset about the disorganisation of the airport. And uh, in that moment, we felt a little embarrassed and we realised Australians can tend to be a little entitled. We are just so used to an impeccable standard of life. Our culture unconsciously shapes so much of who we are and how we think, for better or for worse. And today we're going to look at some of the things that Paul said to a church that was located in an ancient culture. The culture of the city of Corinth. And it's still located in Greece. There's a map of, from Google Maps. It's still located in modern day Greece. Uh, and in the letter of 1, 1 Corinthians, Paul responds to some of the disturbing reports he hears about the church there. He received reports that there were divisions among them. He received reports that there were believers taking each other to court, suing each other. He received reports that there were some taking 
part in pagan feasts and eating food sacrificed to idols. Some of them even had multiple sexual partners. One, it seems, was even in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. The church was in a mess. And one asks themselves while reading the letter, what happened? Why was the church in such a mess? Well, the answer is that the Corinthians was simply too Corinthian. The Corinthian culture had infiltrated the church. Scholars Champion Rosner, they state that many of the Corinthians' faults can be traced to their uncritical acceptance of the attitudes, values and behaviours of the society in which they lived. Another scholar by the name of Lyle Vanderbrook says, the Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. In other words, they were trying to do Christianity in the easiest way possible. They didn't think deeply about their, how their culture honoured or dishonoured Jesus. They didn't face those tough questions that we all need to face if we're going to seriously follow Jesus. I mean, like, is my life honouring him? Do I think his thoughts and value what he values? Or am I more Australian than I am Christian? Am I more South African than I am Christian? Am I more a citizen of this world than I am a citizen of heaven? The Corinthian church was worldly. And Paul hints at this all throughout the letter. Even in the second verse of the letter, we see this. Paul writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, this might not seem like anything at all, but if you go and compare all of the letter openings of Paul's letters, he wrote most of the New Testament, and in the greetings, you'll notice that out of all of the letter openings, only the Corinthian church is the one that he designates as the church of God. And basically, Paul, from the very get-go, from the very second verse, is trying to say to the Corinthians, you are not the church of Corinth. You are the church of God. You belong to God. So what was the big deal about belonging to the city of Corinth? Like, what characterised the Roman city of Corinth? What was it that they valued? Champer and Rosner chime in again. They say, Roman Corinth was prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic, accustomed to visits by impressive travelling speakers and obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. Now, it's a little scary to say this, but it sounds a lot like Brisbane. (laughs) We are prosperous, cosmopolitan, religiously pluralistic, as in many, many religions. We don't just have impressive travelling public speakers, but we have all kinds of artists and stars and celebrities visit the city. And don't even try to say that we are not obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. I mean, think about the rise of the selfie. Think about Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Think about the personal rights campaigns that are going on right now regarding marriage. I mean, Corinth had so much in common with Brisbane. And I mean, some of the ways that we look at churches and, and pastors is much the same as Corinth did. We so easily create celebrities out of Christian leaders. And this is what Corinth did to the teachers that visited them. They began to separate into factions surrounding their favourite leader or teacher. 
Paul says this in verses 11 to 13 in chapter 1. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul was horrified by this division. And although this kind of fan culture was part and parcel of Corinthian culture, it was absolutely antithetical to the kingdom of God. It was absolutely in opposition to the kingdom of God. The Corinthian church was messed up and and they were a product of their culture more than they were a product of the gospel. And I want us to notice today one of the strategies that Paul uses to deal with this issue. We see the strategy in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18 to 25. Emma, Emma read them for us a moment ago, but I'll read them again. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I remember hearing a lady from my Bible college in Brisbane um, to explain her journey to faith in Jesus. And uh, she was always very interested in spiritual things, and she didn't come to faith in Jesus maybe about to her early 30s or something like that. And she, she remarked how when she first started going along to church, she found it kind of uncomfortable during certain songs or parts of the service. I mean, these Christians would be singing their hearts out to, to songs about blood and death and crucifixion. And she found it rather gruesome. I mean, why were these Christians so obsessed with this gruesome torture device? Funnily enough, this is probably what the Greco-Roman Corinth thought about the Christian faith. Greco-Roman society knew the Roman crucifixion well. And it was probably the most degrading and shameful way for anyone to die. A scholar called Joel Green, he explains the crucifixion for us. He says, first, the act of crucifixion was heinously cruel. The procedure itself damaged no vital organs and it is unlikely that any wounds inflicted in the practice would have resulted in excessive bleeding. The likely cause of the consequently slow death then would have been shock or a painful process of asphyxiation as the muscles used in breathing were exhausted. As a result, Roman citizens were generally spared this form of execution. Crucifixion was largely reserved for those of lower status and above all, for dangerous criminals and insurrectionists. Second, crucifixion was a public affair, naked and fastened to a stake, cross or tree on a well-travelled route or crossroads. The executed was subjected to savage ridicule by passers-by. 
Moreover, under Roman practice, the person crucified was denied burial. The corpse was left on the crosses carrying for the birds or to rot. In this way, the general populace was reminded of the fate of those who resisted the authority of the state. The crucifixion was horribly gruesome, horribly brutal. You can imagine the kind of shame that surrounded it. And certainly it was one of the greatest obstacles for the first century person to overcome if they were ever to believe in the Christian God. I mean, these so-called Christians worshipped a God who had been crucified. If we don't understand the type of shame that surrounded crucifixion in the first century, we'll never fully appreciate the cross. We'll never fully appreciate what Paul is getting at in his letters There's a famous piece of graffiti from the Roman Empire which shows Christ on the cross with the head of a donkey. And it was carved into plaster in a wall in Rome. It's called Alexomenos Graffito. And the inscription reads, Alexomenos worships his God. The person is deriding Alexomenos. He's mocking him for being a Christian. The Roman world, of which Corinth was a part of, believed that a crucified Messiah was utterly foolish Yet Paul used, Paul used the foolishness of the cross to show the Corinthians that their wisdom was nothing like God's wisdom. He says in verses 23 to 25, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles and Greeks are the same people. It's pretty much everyone else other than Jews in this, in this passage. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus or church or any of this Christian stuff, we're glad you're here. I want you to notice something about Christians. We know that our belief in Jesus can look foolish to you. We understand that. But we don't believe in him because he conforms to all the rules of logic that our post-enlightenment society upholds. I didn't come to believe in Jesus through historical debates about the resurrection, even though there are amazing resources available. I personally came to believe in Jesus through the foolish message of the gospel. I'd heard about Jesus so many times, but I heard about him again in 2009 at a conference And the message just touched my heart. I believe that this is real, that Jesus really was who he said he was, and he really did die, and he really did rise again. And that was, I believed in that moment, and I followed, and I continue to experience his presence and reality in my life. And understand this, Paul came preaching a foolish message to Greco-Roman Corinthians. He wasn't some kind of swindler trying to get them to believe in a myth. He preached a message that was absolutely absurd in that culture. He didn't water it down or change the message. He preached the message of a crucified Christ. Now, either Paul was insane or he really did experience what he claimed to experience. He really did see the risen Jesus. And he believed so much that he obeyed his command to share the gospel with all he came across with, even if that gospel sounded foolish, even if that led him to be imprisoned, because he believed that God can and indeed has overcome 
the wisdom of the world. He preached about a crucified Christ. And although the Greco-Roman person found this extremely difficult to understand, Paul asserts that this is in fact how God saved the world. God saved the world, not through human might or through worldly wisdom, but through the most unlikely of events. God saved the world through an event that everyone else thought was the most degrading and gruesome death a human being could experience. And indeed it was. But in that moment of shame, God secured salvation and freedom for all mankind. Who would have thought that God would achieve his rescue plan for humanity through something like this? But he did. And this is why in the cross, the wisdom of the wise has been destroyed. The wisdom of the world has been judged through the cross of Jesus. Like Paul said, the world did not know God through wisdom. Instead, he says, it pleased God through the apparent folly of a crucified Messiah to save those who believe. And this illustrates what John said last week. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. It pleased God to unveil his plan in this way because it undermined the pomp and pride of human wisdom so that we might give glory to God alone. Now, none of us can say that we discovered God through our own wisdom. He revealed himself to us by grace alone. All the glory goes to God. God chose to save us through something that was utterly foolish and shameful in the eyes of the surrounding culture. The Romans would have never imagined something like this. I mean, their opinion of wisdom and power was to conquer the nations around them. That was their kind of wisdom. Brute force, human strength, armies, land, territory, wealth, power. And this is very human, isn't it? I mean, look at America. They have the largest military budget in the world. When it comes to problems with Russia or mistrust concerning China or worries about North Korea, the world, at least in some way, looks to the American superpower to keep these countries in check. They look to the big guy with the big guns. No average person would think to look to a Judean man called Jesus who died on a Roman cross when he was 30 years old. I mean, in the world's eyes, there wouldn't be wise, that would be foolish, that would be unthinkably stupid. Yet this is the way that God has accomplished salvation for all who believe. The cross was the declaration that human wisdom was over. Human wisdom didn't and indeed, indeed still hasn't provided the solution for our problems. Instead, God provided our solution through the foolishness of a Roman cross about 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, our precious Saviour was betrayed by one of his very own disciples. He was taken by a violent mob. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was put under multiple trials with false accusations and ultimately he was sentenced to death by crucifixion. He was beaten and mocked and ridiculed. Beaten so badly that it says in Isaiah that he wasn't even recognisable as a human being. So badly that he couldn't carry his own cross to the place of his execution. And while people were bartering over his clothes, he was crucified. 
Who would have thought that in those moments of shame, nakedness, and humiliation, that he was achieving the greatest rescue plan that humanity has ever known? We believe that in that moment, he was acting as our substitute, taking our judgment in our place. The Bible says that he actually became our sin and took our judgment so that through faith alone we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be reconciled to our Creator and Father again, so that we might be set free from the weight of sin and death and addiction. Who would have thought that this was being achieved in those moments of torment? And this is where Paul directs the Corinthian Christians' eyes. They were worldly. They were puffed up with pride and they thought they were truly wise, upholding common Corinthian values and believing in different things from the prevailing Greek philosophies of the time, things that led them to take each other to court, things that led them to sexual immorality. They were messed up, but Paul directed their eyes to the cross again. And in that cross, he showed that human wisdom died. The upside-down, paradoxical kingdom of God is not set up around typical human values of money, power and sex, but rather was ultimately set up through a humiliating death on a cross. I mean, how could the Corinthian Christians ever fall for the lies of human wisdom again? After we gaze full blaze at the cross of Jesus Christ, we cannot help but conclude that the wisdom of the world has died. It has failed. Even in their attempt to destroy Jesus, they played into God's hands. In Corinthians 2 verse 8, it says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, but if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of the age got it wrong. The powers of religion, politics and wealth all failed to stop Jesus. The powers of the Pharisees and the Sadducees failed. The Romans failed. Herod failed. Satan and his angels failed to stop Jesus. They all failed. They couldn't fathom that as they crucified Jesus, they were actually playing into God's plan. They thought that if they had a problem, they could stop it by killing the person. But what looked like defeat was actually victory. What looked like foolishness and shame was actually part of God's great and an unimaginable wisdom to save the world. And the irony is that Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians that they are behaving more like the rulers who crucified Jesus than like the God they claim to worship. They embodied the wisdom of this world rather than the superior wisdom of God. They hadn't let the gospel they believed seep into every area of life and thought. Lyle Vanderbrook says each of the community problems of Paul needed to, each of the community problems Paul needed to address grew out of the Corinthians' inability to let the gospel message fully reshape their Gentile, Greco-Roman lives. Do you think you know the gospel? Think again. Meditate on Jesus and his life, death and resurrection again. Let the cross of Jesus permeate every area of your life. Not just Sunday, but Monday through Saturday life. Not just church life, but business life. Not just spiritual life, but everyday, messy, authentic kind of life. The gospel 
is the answer for our blindness to the culture around us. The gospel exposes the lies of human wisdom that we so easily believe. What have we accepted from our culture that isn't part of God's kingdom? How much does the Australian dream seem to fit into God's kingdom? And compare that with the picture of success that Jesus painted for us at the cross. Where do we derive our pleasure and joy from in life? Compare that with who Jesus found his joy in, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where, do we, where have we thought that we just need better music or better sermons before we will be impactful as a church? I mean, we already have everything we need. We, we hear the saving message of the gospel week in and week out, and all we need to do is take that message outside these walls. We should take great confidence in the way that God accomplished salvation through the cross because he didn't do it through human might or human wisdom. He uses people like us. People like us, even if I'm not the most eloquent person, even if you don't think you know all the details of the Bible, if you know the gospel, you can go and share that with someone outside of these walls and God's power can meet them in that. God's power, he loves to glorify himself and show his power through human weakness, through human foolishness, through the message of a crucified Messiah. And you know what? The same gospel that God used to save, uses to save those outside these walls, is the same gospel God uses to keep saving and transforming us. We need to be bowled over time and time again by the beauty and the power and the wisdom of the gospel. And to that end, I want to encourage us to do two things. The first thing is consider reading books that explain the gospel in powerful and beautiful ways. These two books I've read before, and um, the first one's by J.D. Greer. He's a favorite preacher of mine, and... uh, Gospel wakefulness is something I'm reading again at the moment. I remember reading one of those chapters and being reduced to tears because of how beautifully the gospel was put forth to me. And that's, that's what we want. We want to continue to dwell in this beautiful gospel message that, that Paul proclaimed. And the second thing is the next time you hear something in a Christian circle that doesn't sound quite right, hold it up against the cross. Does it fit? Does it align with God as we see him revealed at the cross? We must think again and again on the gospel. Allow it to shape our wisdom and our thinking and our culture and our values. And my prayer is that while we do this, that we will be refreshed with God's power and that the scales of worldly wisdom will fall away from our eyes And that we will do life according to the wisdom of God, not according to the wisdom of the world around us. Let's pray. Father God, it can be so hard to see our culture. It can be so difficult and we see in your word the Corinthian Christians who allowed their culture to infiltrate the church and they were more like Corinthianity than Christianity. And Lord, we acknowledge that we live in a culture and in a time and in a place in the world and it's so hard for us 
to see sometimes where, how our culture has influenced us and the way that we view you and the way that we view the Christian life and all these sorts of things. And Lord, we ask that you'd set our eyes on you again. Set our eyes on the cross again. And that you would allow your values, your desire, what you love, what you uphold, to infiltrate our hearts, to infiltrate our church. We want to be like you, Jesus. Whether that looks like Brisbane or not, we want to be like you. Let us see you afresh. Glorify yourself in our midst. And Jesus, we thank you that you willingly subjected yourself to the shame of the cross to reveal your great love, your great grace. to die on our behalf as our substitute for our failures and wrongdoing and addictions so that we might be set free. We put our faith in you because you are perfect. Our assurance in life is not based on our perfection, it's based on your perfection, Jesus. Fill us up again. Open our eyes to the gospel again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond, church, by standing together and singing.